This is The Ethicist, a podcast from the New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, novelist and writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Times Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce my co-hosts. Anthony Appiah, teaching philosophy at New York University. Welcome, Anthony. Thanks very much, Amy. And Kenji Yoshino, teaching law at New York University. Hello, Kenji. Hi, Amy. Coming up, we'll tackle reader questions about how a charitable contribution can be unethical, what to do with vintage goods and their morally dubious past, and whether or not there are books one should ban. And now, on to our first question. Dear ethicists, my daughter just graduated from college and landed a job with a financial services firm. This firm will match up to $1,000 from each employee in donations to nonprofits and charities. I've always felt disappointed that, as a government employee, I was never able to land matches for the nonprofits I donate to. I would like to offer to her that if she makes up to $1,000 in donations, I will reimburse her. She gets to choose the nonprofit, she gets the tax deduction, and I get the pleasure of knowing the donation is doubled. I can see arguments on both sides around the messages I am giving her. I don't think I would be in the crosshairs of the IRS. I am otherwise giving her about $6,000 this year. Why do I feel so uneasy? Signed, LG, Portland, Oregon. So I think this is a close call, but I came down on the notion that the letter writer's proposal is unethical. And I was really trying to look at it from the company's point of view. So companies that offer matching programs really do carefully debate eligibility requirements in part to discern how much money they have committed themselves to giving. So the cap the company imposes on donations is based on the employee and sometimes other eligible donors. But the assumption is that everyone will not give up to the cap, you know, based on broader sort of actuarial patterns of giving. So if everyone used ineligible donors to give up to the cap, then the intentions and the projections of the company would be thwarted. So I would say this is, you know, money laundering for a really good cause, but it's still money laundering. I thought this was interesting because uh, this is one of those cases where each of the steps in the process seems sort of okay, and what's wrong is the somehow the combination of them. So it's okay to give an extra thousand dollars to your daughter. It's yeah, uh, it's it's okay to make conditions on gifts. Uh, it's okay for your daughter to give. Uh, to, to say that the money is her gift since the money is hers because you've given it to her and so on. And yet, in the end, what's going on doesn't seem... Uh, the combination of all these things seems fishy. And I, I think the main reason is that there's just an obvious sense in which this isn't actually the daughter's gift, even though, it, as it were, legally it might be the daughter's gift because it doesn't have anything to do with her. It's The, the choices are all being made by the mother. And um, Well, the daughter could choose to say... You know, that doesn't work for me, even if the mother, I mean, the the daughter does have a choice. She's a grown woman with a full-time job and presumably capable of paying her own bills and even choosing her own charities. And I agree with you. It seems sort of like each step seems sort of relatively harmless, but it also doesn't seem to me that the mother, something a little odd going on, but it doesn't seem to me that the mother is actually imposing her will. It sounds to me like she said to her daughter, hey, honey, I have a great idea. You know, I'll give you the money, you pick the charity, and the company will double the donation. And for reasons that are hard for me to explain, I have always been disappointed 
in my entire adult life that as a government employee, I was never able to land matches for the nonprofits I donated to, and you can help me redress this wrong. But the other thing that I think is, is not good is that she is encouraging her daughter, it seems to me, to um, look charitable without actually being charitable. And that yeah, just doesn't seem like a good idea. I think that's really important. Uh, in the mother's defense, she isn't saying, you know, I'm going to give you the money and put a condition that you give it to this particular charity. So I guess that's what really gave me pause, even though I ultimately agree with both of you, is, you know, let's isolate where the problem begins, right? Because if I say to the daughter, I'm just giving you this money, and then would it be okay if I said, and it would be great if you, you know, use this for philanthropic purposes, um, we assume that that would be fine, right? Uh, so I think it only becomes problematic at the point where the mother is implicitly hoping or expressing the hope that the daughter is going to get the company to match. And I think that raises the two problems that we were uh, discussing, one of which is my point about the company, which is, you know, the unfairness to the company. And Amy, I think your point about the unfairness to or making the daughter misunderstand what giving really is, like having her look charitable without having to, you know, to make the sacrifice to actually be charitable. Yeah. And again, this is a grown woman, um, the daughter. You know, she's not nine. It's not like we're asking her to make a larger donation to the Girl Scouts. But, you know, to say to your grown daughter, honey, here's a great idea. You'll look charitable. Your company will double the donation. They'll never know the difference. None of this strikes me as a particularly good and ethical approach. One feature of this situation that we haven't sort of perhaps uh, pulled out is that this is a mother who's already giving $6,000 a year to this daughter. So she has a kind <laughs> of pull over her when she says, hey, wouldn't this be a good idea that's different if it was just a matter of the $1,000. It's as if, you know, here's someone who's giving you a lot of money and then they say, hey, I'll give you a bit more if you'll do such and such. That's kind of bordering on the coercive, it seems to me, in a way that it wouldn't be if if the only exchange going on was just $1,000. So there's something a little bit unhappy about the relationship between the mother and the daughter, I think, as well. Well, it might be unhappy. On the other hand, you know, I, I don't want to discount the possibility that the daughter just graduated from college and with her new job with financial services firms thinks that that $6,000 is a terrific boon in her life. And if it will make her mother happy for her to, um, you know, launder some money in a good cause, she may not feel terribly coerced. Um, but I, I take your point. Um, I'm sort of th thinking of it from the just graduated from college, new job, college debt point of view and thinking, that would be great. I'd be delighted to have $6,000 and, you know, give your money to a cause that I think is a good one. So um, do we all agree that the mother should let this regret in her life go? I, that would be great. Yes. All right, let's dive into the next letter. Dear ethicists, when my mother passed away, I inherited a beautiful antique necklace made of carved ivory beads. I love the look of this necklace and my sentimental tie to it but I am also a supporter, financially, ethically, and emotionally, of anti-poaching programs and organizations. I have avoided wearing the necklace because I don't want to appear to support the ivory trade. On the other hand, I hate not being able to wear one of the few pieces of jewelry that I have from my mother. What should I do with this necklace? Signed, J.F. Tustin, California. So I'm a bit puzzled about why uh, wearing an antique ivory necklace uh, 
involves appearing to support the ivory trade if it's obvious that it's antique. I mean, if it's obvious it's antique, <laughs> then the uh, ivory was taken before the trade was banned, which was in the 70s, 1970s. Uh, so anybody who knows anything about it, and only someone who knows something about it is likely to care, will know that an antique uh, ivory necklace doesn't really um, sort of have anything to do with the issue of stopping the trade in more recently killed uh, elephant uh, tusks. So... Um, so I think if the issue has to do with appearing to be indifferent to the issue of species preservation, there isn't a problem. But, of course, any ivory is likely to have been taken from an elephant whose death was unpleasant and occurred in order to acquire the ivory. I mean, there are a few exceptions, but generally speaking, the reason ivory exists is because somebody killed an elephant in order that it should be used in this kind of decorative way. So somewhere back in the chain, there's likely to be a moment where something rather awful happened. But I don't think, while that's awful, I don't think that you're contributing to that wrong in the present by wearing this, uh, uh, this antique um, ivory necklace. And indeed, if you think about it, if having some problem back in the chain of the production of the jewellery uh, was a reason for not wearing jewellery, then an awful lot of jewellery shouldn't be worn, since antique jewellery, since um, much of the gold and silver produced in the past was probably produced by human beings who were working in awful conditions. So I think the right thing to do is to focus on the present, on anti-poaching efforts today, supporting those, and I would feel free to wear the, the necklace uh, and explain to anyone who asks, uh, if you think it's their business, that, um, that you know, you've thought it through and this, you know this ivory wasn't produced as a result of the modern trade. I see that. I can't think of any antique jewelry with or without stones or even vintage tablecloths or vintage clothing or vintage furs that were not likely to have been made under conditions that would make, you know, a decent person shudder or at least be uncomfortable. But I think your point that if it's antique, it happened before the 1976 trade ban, and you're not supporting those terrible conditions now. And of course, please don't support them in any other way as much as you, as much as you can avoid doing so. I think the other thing that it made me think about is um, this idea of people coming up to... Um, you know, to the wearer and um, criticizing the fact that she's wearing ivory. Um, and it just seems to me that there's that that wish that people have to comment on other people's choices and make them feel bad and harass them about wearing ivory, whether or not they have the information about it. And um, it just doesn't seem to me that that intrusive self-righteousness qualifies as ethical behavior either. So I would very much encourage her to wear the necklace, enjoy the feeling of closeness to her late mother. You know, most of what I have from my mother are a couple of rings and a couple of necklaces. And I am sure, um, since a couple of the pieces were from my great aunt, um, that those pieces were made under terrible circumstances. They were not made in a charming, well-lit, nice and airy um, atelier. And um, I, I, I'm still going to wear them, and I am glad I have them. Um, and I would really discourage people from popping up at cocktail parties and accosting people about what they are wearing. 
You know, I, I, you've both persuaded me, as you often do. And I started out with a, a very different position, which is, you know, you, I was trying to thread the needle and say, uh, don't, you don't have to sell it. You know, in fact, you couldn't, I don't think, uh, unless you had some no. kind of certificate, at least in the United States. Um, so keep it, you know, ethically, um, but don't wear it out. Right. Uh, and then as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, well, why do I think that? And I think part of it is this notion of you're still signaling when you wear it out um, that you that people might misunderstand you as being um, apathetic about the ivory trade. Uh, but this becomes a question of how much do you have a responsibility to cater to other people's ignorance about that? You know, we do have this notion that certain goods are more kind of um, inflammatory uh, than others. And so uh, are you uh, signaling something about uh, that you don't want to signal uh, if you do this? And should you care as long as you're assured that you yourself are behaving ethically? I cannot imagine spending your life getting invested in the opinions of people who are standing there silently judging you. It would be okay to care about those judgments if they were correct. Right. But, but given, right. That they're, given that they're incorrect and given that making this incorrect judgment isn't going to lead these people to do anything terrible to elephants, uh, it's not clear to me that, um, that I mean, of course, it's a better world in which everybody has correct beliefs. So other yes. things being equal, I suppose we shouldn't encourage false beliefs. But uh, in this case, it seems to me that your responsibility to these other people is discharged if, when they ask you, you tell them the truth, which is that uh, given the way the system works, uh, wearing these beads uh, doesn't contribute in any way uh, either to the thought that it's okay to kill elephants now uh, or to the actual trade in uh, modern ivory. Is that true, though, Anthony? Because uh, I totally agree that with both of you that the, uh, that the incorrect beliefs of others should not guide our own ethical uh, decision-making as a general matter. But here, I guess I'm questioning if there isn't some fraction of this that is a correct belief, that by wearing this ivory necklace, you are signaling to the world that this is still a, a luxury good, that this is still something that should be lofted up as, a, as something that should be admired. And then someone might say, I want one of those myself. And you might incite them to go and engage in unethical behavior themselves. So is there anything to that? Or am I off base here? I, 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 I mean, I, look, I, if I thought that uh, the wearing of this uh, um, particular necklace in the community in which she's going to wear it would encourage large numbers or even significant numbers or even small but uh, <laughs> d detectable numbers of people uh, to go out looking for modern ivory. Uh, I suppose I would worry a little bit about that. But you're, you're not really responsible, it seems to me, for thoughts uh, that other people have which uh, are the result of misinterpreting what you're doing uh, unless that misinterpretation is a natural one. And I think the fact that this is an old uh, necklace, an antique one that looks old, as it were, suggests that uh, it's just a mistake to infer that the person thinks it's okay or that anyone should think it's okay to go on um, uh, treating you know, elephants in the awful ways that are required to get ivory in the present. But, um, yeah, I suppose, you know, I would worry a little bit if I thought that it was likely that people would be uh, uh, led to do something uh, wrong uh, by wearing a piece of jewellery. But I, I just I think that the 
as I but say, I don't think there's much you can do about that because, you know, let's say I'm in the grocery store with my adorable children, and somebody, a young woman, who strikes me as being unlikely to be a very good mother, um, due to the things that I've heard her say and her behavior, and maybe I saw her shoplifting the other day, and maybe I saw her hitting her little sister, whatever it is, reasons I think that maybe being a mother right now would not be a good idea. And she sees me with my adorable children, and she goes, you are having such a great time, and motherhood looks so delightful. I'm going to go have babies right now. (laughs) It can't be my fault. It can't be that I should not have taken the children out in public. Okay, I, I am content. I'm persuaded. She can she can keep it. She can wear it. Uh, if other people come up to her, that's great. If they don't come up to her, that's their problem. And on to our last question. Dear ethicists, I recently had a conversation with a friend who was a children's librarian. She proudly declared that she was using her discretion to weed out books and purging the children's section of a book by Bill Cosby. She justified the decision by saying that she doesn't want to have books by someone who has been accused of raping other women to be in the children's section because she doesn't want the children to look up to Cosby as a role model. Her unilateral decision to purge her library of these books seems to border on crossing librarian ethics and seems to effectively censor certain authors. Is my friend's behavior ethical? Signed, Luke Hall, Mount Rainier, Maryland. I think if you are going to take books out of the library by writers who have not only unsavory reputations, but about whom we have truly repellent factual information, you're going to take a lot of books out. And um, I think that's going to be too bad for the kids and for the adults. Um, Although I can appreciate that a librarian might want to get rid of Kris Jenner's and all things Kardashian on the bookshelves to make more room for Emily Dickinson. But nevertheless, they might choose to have that book in the library because somebody might want to read it. I don't think you want to ban The Prince and the Pauper because of Mark Twain's somewhat queasy-making reputation with um, pre-adolescent girls. I think between the terrible things that lots of writers do and the very unfortunate ways that they are, making them often really bad role models, you know, you know, why would you have Dorothy Parker's work? Why would you want some drunken, self-loathing Jewish woman's work on your bookshelves? But, you know, she's a hell of a writer. And I, I don't see it. I don't see taking books off shelves because um, someone is either alleged to have done something awful or even because they did do something awful. And um, I looked at Bill Cosby's books for children, and they are heartwarming enough and um, appropriate for kids. And um, I don't see why they shouldn't uh, stay on the shelves. I just think this is one of those incredibly slippery slopes. This seems to be a mashup of two uh, issues and, in fact, two questions that we've gotten previously. One Mm -hmm. question I'm reminded of is a progressive who purged her gym library of gun magazines, and we came down resoundingly in favor of saying um, that was, or we came down resoundingly to say that that was unethical. So one question is, you know, is it within the librarian's purview to um, curate which books remain in the library? Um, and I doubt she has completely unfettered discretion, so it does seem like she's taking um, matters into her own hands in an incorrect way. 
And then the other issue is, you know, can we separate good work from bad artists, you know, or, you know, people, uh, artists whom we think are of bad character? And this is a question we got uh, some a while back about, can is it okay to sort of enjoy and pay for and support Woody Allen movies or, or what have you? And I think there, again, we came down resoundingly uh, on the side of, you know, Rousseau gives his kids up for orphanages, but that doesn't mean that he didn't do valuable work. And so, again, I think that we have to drive a wedge here between the, the work and the man or the work and the author. So this, to me, was a fairly easy one for me. Yeah. I think the, the there's a sort of idea in here that's a, that I, I think we should we should sort of urge people to resist, which is the idea that... Um, it's implicit in the sentence that says something about role models. Um, I, I don't think in general what children take away from reading books is the thought that they ought to emulate the author. Um, and if they do, that's something they ought, to, they ought to learn not to do. That is to say, one part of growing up is learning that uh, terrible people can write good books. And so if a child says after reading Oliver Twist or a slightly older child says after reading Oliver Twist, I want to be like Charles Dickens, you can say, well, Charles Dickens was a good person in some ways, uh, but he had uh, some some views that you probably don't want to have. Um, he thought uh, giving votes to the freed slaves, for example, after the Civil War in the United States was a melancholy absurdity. Well, I don't think that's uh, that's a view that I want children to be encouraged to have, but that isn't a reason for them not to read Oliver Twist, it's a reason for them to learn to distinguish, as, as Kenji just said, uh, between between the author and the work. So, um, A, I don't think in general that children want to model themselves on the authors of the books they read. And B, if they do, they should be they should learn, you know, part of what we need to teach them is that that's a, that's a terrible idea. Yeah, it's that moment that you look for with kids, as they call them, teachable moments. Mm -hmm. It's so great that you enjoyed this book. You probably don't want to model yourself on this person, or there are more things to know, or people are complicated, and you may want to develop opinions about other things that you hear them say. Um, I, I will say that um, there was some irony as I was looking at the Cosby books, because one of his most successful ones is called My Big Lie, a little bill <laughs> book for beginning readers. Oh, no. And that's it for The Ethicists. If you'd like to send us your ethical quandary or comment on the show, you can reach us at ethicists at nytimes.com. If you'd like to leave a voicemail question for us to answer on the show, the number is 212-556-7070. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes. Our producer is Carrie Hillman, and the music is by the band Broke for Free. For Anthony Appiah and Kenji Yoshino, I'm Amy Bloom. We'll talk to you next week on The Ethicist.